Good evening, this is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Vicki Iden is off this evening. Here are tonight's headlines. Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett is slated to become the next U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg. Appropriate because the European country has a population just slightly larger than the city of Milwaukee. Rumors of President Biden's nomination of Barrett to the position have been swirling for months, according to the Wisconsin Journal Sentinel. And the formal confirmation process will likely take several more months, Mayor Barrett said in a press conference today. Barrett's departure as mayor could leave a political vacuum in Milwaukee politics. Barrett has been Milwaukee's mayor for 17 years. Top Wisconsin officials visited Fort McCoy today, the U.S. Army base in central Wisconsin, where some Afghan refugees are being temporarily housed. Governor Tony Evers was reportedly briefed on operations, planning, and medical processing as he met with Afghan individuals being housed. Meanwhile, GOP Senator Ron Johnson and a group of state legislators also visited the Army base today. Johnson took the opportunity to criticize the Biden administration and raise questions about the arrival of the refugees. Meanwhile, military officials are reminding folks to be wary of scams regarding the refugees at Fort McCoy. In a Facebook post, spokespeople reiterated that no one from the federal government can solicit for donations or gifts for the arrival of the refugees. The Associated Press reports that the base is expected to receive some 10,000 Afghan refugees in the coming weeks. Some local arts leaders are pushing back against Dane County's mask mandate. The recent mask order, which Public Health Madison Dane County put into effect last week, is slated to last for at least a month. It requires most individuals to wear a mask in indoor public spaces. Previous mask orders have exempted certain kinds of musical performers, but the most recent mask order does not exempt performers wearing masks, frustrating some arts leaders who say they may be forced to cancel performances as a result. In interviews with the Capital Times, spokespeople for organizations like FPC Live, a concert promoter, the Madison Symphony Orchestra, and the Wisconsin School Music Association, a professional music education network, all described how the lack of An exemption for performers is threatening their upcoming performances. And in more reporting from the Capital Times, the Madison Metropolitan School District is still experiencing a bus driver shortage one week before the fall semester begins. And to accommodate the shortage, start and dismissal times are being shifted for many schools. Madison Elementary Schools now have four different start and end times. Madison Middle Schools now have three. Neighboring school districts, in fact, school districts throughout the state of Wisconsin, are also experiencing shortages of bus drivers. And finally, here are your COVID-19 numbers for today. The Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports that the state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,417 cases per day. The seven-day average of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 is 755. That's the highest number of hospitalizations since late January. Those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's news. (coughs) 
Collectivo Coffee, the Milwaukee-based coffee chain, cafe chain, excuse me, which has three locations in Madison, is poised to become the nation's largest unionized coffee chain. On Monday, the National Labor Relations Board handed pro-union Collectivo workers a major victory. Our producer, Jonah Chester, takes it from there. In April, a vote by Collectivo workers on whether or not to unionize split 99 to 99. Shortly after that vote, 16 ballots were challenged and handed off to the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, for deliberation. On Monday, the NLRB released its decision on the contested ballots, bringing the count to 106 workers in favor of unionizing to 99 against. The NLRB's decision marks one of the final steps for Colectivo's workers to organize into an official union. Dean Warsh is a business manager with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 494 out of Milwaukee. Warsh and the IBEW have played a major role in helping the Colectivo workers organize over the past year. Warsh says that the ballots still need to be formally certified by the NLRB. NLRB has seven days to certify the vote, so we're looking at next Monday or Tuesday getting the certification back. But there are objections to the election, which they'll have to go through. Um, And I'm not sure what all the objections are and the exact process, but we're, we're hoping everything just gets dropped and we can sit down with ownership and get a deal done. When the Labor Relations Board certifies the vote results, Collectivo Workers, Management, and the IBEW will sit down to negotiate a new contract, a process Warsh says could take anywhere from a few hours to a few months. That's a crystal ball question. I mean, we we cover 18 contracts out of our office, and some of them we sit down and uh, we're done in an hour and a half, two hours. Others go on for four months and end up in arbitration. So it, it can go either way. Collectivo is poised to become the largest unionized cafe chain in the nation. According to Collectivo Management, the chain employs about 440 people. In a statement issued after the NLRB's decision, Collectivo Management wrote that, quote, The NLRB counted votes of several individuals who announced their resignations prior to the close of the election. We don't think those former co-workers should have been allowed to have a voice in unionization at an organization where they did not intend to work, unquote. The chain's owners also expressed concern that a minority of workers had voted in favor of unionizing. More than 300 ballots were issued to workers in April, of which more than 200 were returned. 116 of those ballots were in favor of unionizing. David Knack is a professor emeritus at UW-Madison's School for Workers. Prior to that role, he spent 24 years as an organizer and business agent in both public and private sector unions. Knack says that organizing unions in the restaurant and service industry has historically proven tricky, as high turnover rates make collective action more difficult. Uh, You have a very fluid workforce where people are leaving, coming and going all the time, uh, quitting for better jobs or for other reasons. Uh, And that makes it, uh, when you have a very high turnover of the workforce, it, it just makes it much harder to communicate with people or even to track uh, you know, who's who and who who's still there and, and who has moved on to somewhere else. So that's that's one big aspect of it. it it's just very hard in, in many instances where you have rel- uh, relatively low-paid workers and um, the employer feels that they can, you know, pretty much um, throw their weight around. 
Ida Lucchese is a Collectivo barista. Speaking at a press conference in Milwaukee earlier today, Lucchese expressed optimism about the Collectivo Union's future. I feel over this last year and a half, we have really worked as um, a unit and like gotten to know a lot of people across the company. Um, and so being able to build on that even more is going to be really rewarding. And I think it'll also be really important to show other people in the service industry that it can be done and that they um, can work towards this as well. Collectivo operates three shops in Madison, one on Monroe Street, one on State Street, and one on the Capitol Square. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recognizes August as National Breastfeeding Month. As the month comes to a close, a bipartisan bill in the state legislature aims to protect parents' right to pump breast milk at work. Here's Jade Isiri Ramos. All 50 states have laws that allow breastfeeding anywhere. But Wisconsin is behind several states when it comes to protecting employees that need to pump. Now, a bipartisan coalition of state lawmakers is floating a bill guaranteeing employees unpaid pumping breaks in a private location that is somewhere other than a restroom for the first year of their baby's life. These conditions are already required by the federal government under the Fair Labor Standards Act for larger interstate businesses. Democrat Lisa Subek, a state representative from Madison, authored the bill. She says this will bring the state in line with federal regulations and go further in supporting employees. This is such a great win-win because it enables women who want to or need to go back to work more quickly to do so without having to sacrifice breastfeeding and without having to sacrifice the health of their baby. And, you know, it allows employers then to actually have those women back in the workplace, being able to do their jobs and being able to do them well. Under the bill, employers would also have to provide electrical outlets and somewhere to store breast milk. The breaks would be unpaid, but they would be considered paid work time for determining eligibility for health insurance. Subek said she initially introduced the legislation after hearing from a constituent who worked as a dental assistant. But she came to me and said, is there anything you can do? Her employer was complying with everything that the federal government asked, you know, giving her break time to be able to pump breast milk. But that break time was unpaid. She understood that. She was comfortable with that. She wasn't asking to be paid for that time. But because she worked just right at the threshold to be eligible for insurance benefits, the little bit of unpaid time she was taking each week dropped her below the insurance threshold. The bill does have some exceptions for undue hardship, including cases where accommodations significantly disrupt a business's operations. This bill was originally introduced in 2015 and again in 2017. However, it never made it out of committee. Senator Joan Balweg, a Republican from Marcusan, is the author of the bill. She says she's optimistic about the legislation's odds this time around. This is one way to support moms, support families, and provide um, qualified folks the opportunity to get back in the workforce and stay in the workforce. There's a lot of legislation that it just takes some time for folks to understand the, uh, the benefits versus the drawbacks. So I'm just hoping this is an education piece that we can find more support as we, um, as we go along. And maybe this is the year that, that um, we get it across the finish line. We will see. The bill now heads to committees in both the state assembly and Senate. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jada Siri Ramos.
time is now 6.18, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The University of Wisconsin-Madison is launching a new research center to study the applications of certain psychedelic substances. The Center for Research in Psychoactive Substances will study the scientific, cultural, and historical aspects of everything from ecstasy to magic mushrooms. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dr. Paul Hudson, the center's founding director. So just uh, by way of background here, tell me a little bit about the goal of the center. What are you looking to investigate in particular in, let's say, your, your first six months of, of formal operations? We already have five clinical trials that are underway or just about ready to start. So as a cohort of clinical studies, we're already well-established. We have acquired from various sources over $3.5 million in donated funds for research, clinical research. and. So the center itself is intended to be sort of a resource on campus to other investigators that are trying to work in this space but having difficulty with the basically the, the standing infrastructure that's required to do these kinds of studies. That infrastructure is largely two things. One, it's a dedicated study room where we can protect the space for somebody who's being treated with uh, psilocybin or MDMA or drugs in that, uh, those categories, and also the, the study staff that we need to uh, prepare the, the subjects and attend them during their typically eight-hour sessions, and then bring them back for an integration session. So it's, it's very time-consuming of both personnel and space. And so what we're trying to do at the center is to attract additional funding so that we can expand the, the space that we have to do the studies in, as well as the de- dedicated time for the study personnel. On top of that, we've got uh, an educational commitment. Uh, we have a symposium that we're going to be presenting on campus uh, in early November, focused on work that's being done here at the university, as well as some keynote speakers from around the country. And so we're, we're trying to provide objective educational materials that present a uh, somewhat neutral uh, approach to what the, the science is with the psychedelics, uh, because quite honestly, there's a lot of hype about them right now. And the studies that are looking so encouraging in the early trials still need to be confirmed with uh, additional studies before they're FDA approved. One, you know, one of the other things, Jonah, that we were, we're struggling with, and that is a major component of what we're trying to do with the center, is to provide a way that we can better understand what the barriers are for underserved populations like Blacks, Indigenous cultures, First, First Nations. Why is the accrual rate in these populations so low in psychedelic studies? I think there are multiple reasons. Suspicion of uh, medical research in general, suspicion of drugs that are focused on mental health, and frankly, the the difficulty in getting to and from the the preparation and the dosing session. Difficult uh, to deal with childcare, getting away from work. So we're, we're actually we're going to have some listening sessions, we hope, in the near future to better understand how we can address these barriers, address these concerns, and provide better access to this kind of research uh, for individuals that are, at this point, underrepresented. Part of the reason that we have to move in this direction fairly quickly is that 
These drugs, such as MDMA and psilocybin, are likely to be approved by the FDA. That's my bet. Within about three to five years, and probably sooner in some cases. And at that point, we need to be able to have a system in place where we can identify what needs to happen so that individuals in these underserved populations can have access to what are really breakthrough medications, it seems. That's the way the FDA has described them. And I think that uh, we owe it to these uh, groups of individuals to find a better way for them to be able to access it. Tell me about the decision to make this a um, a multidisciplinary research institution or a research center. You're taking a bit of a holistic approach to these psychedelics. You know, you're approaching it, yes, from the lens of science, but also, as I understand it, from a historical and a cultural perspective. Take me behind the decision making process on why you're approaching it from those three separate angles. Well, we we think that looking at it from a holistic approach and bringing in individuals from multiple parts of the academic enterprise here at the university is really important. Otherwise, we wouldn't have made our the name of the center so terribly awkward. Transdisciplinary Center for Research in Psychoactive Substances is a mouthful, but it does really reflect more generally what we're trying to do. First of all, I'll mention that we didn't use psychedelic substances uh, for various reasons, one of which is that there is some research that suggests that perhaps some of the drugs in this class may have a neuroplastic effect, an effect on cognition or new synapse development that does not require a psychedelic experience. And so psychoactive substances is actually more descriptive of what the scope of this might be. But the transdisciplinary part of our center's name really reflects the fact that we're trying to bring in individuals from across the campus that can address with their own expertise the areas that really affect the understanding of how to use these best within a given, given culture and how to better understand what's happening in, uh, in the individuals. For example, we've got Dr. John uh, Dunn from Buddhist Studies and, and Asian uh, Studies that is an expert in meditation. And uh, Giulio Tononi uh, from the, the Department of Psychiatry, world-renowned for his work in consciousness studies. So this is an area that is rather far, far separated from the neuropharmacology that we might otherwise be focused on if we were just a, a center looking at research in psychedelics. Additionally, we've got individuals like Lucas or Luke Rickert. And Dr. Rickert is a historian who's written uh, multiple books on the history and the culture, if you will, of illicit drugs, such as with cannabis. And he's also the director of the American Institute of the History of Pharmacy. And he's bringing his expertise to the center in terms of better documenting and understanding the historical precedents and the, the current details that are affecting the acceptance of uh, psilocybin and other psychedelics when 20 years ago, perhaps that was not the case. And, and uh, so that kind of understanding from a, a liberal arts perspective is going to be really important. From a cultural side as well, we have Alberto Vargas. Dr. Vargas uh, is a scholar of Latin American, Central and South American uh, cultures with a particular interest in the Sonoran Yaqui tribe. Even his graduate students, like uh, Ani Bernal, are looking at the, the Sonoran uh, Indian culture, Native American culture, and looking, for example, at the impact of psychedelic tourism, where the interest in these uh, Sonoran desert toads that secrete substances like bupotanine and 5-MeO-DMT 
leads to this current trend in toad licking, if you will. There's an impact on the, the tribe with these individuals trying to come in and, in a sense, usurp what is, uh, what is their culture, what is their ecology. So we feel that we are rather unique, quite honestly, in the space of academic centers that declare themselves research centers in psychedelics because we are, I think, more holistic and we're reaching across more disciplines to find common areas, find areas that we can support each other and make each other more efficient and uh, perhaps have a little bit more fun with it as well. In researching these these psychoactive materials, is cultural and social stigma a major barrier at all? You know, most people, when you bring up these uh, these list of, of uh, psychoactive materials, uh, their mind immediately turns to things like the 60s, Jefferson Airplane, what have you. Are there still barriers associated with that that you have had to overcome in your research or that researchers are still facing when they're proposing to research these topic areas? Or has that sort of stigma died down in recent years? As you mentioned, um, you know, uh, medical approval for certain materials is, is on the near horizon. So what does that look like? I think there is a stigma or a preconceived sense of the safety and the efficacy of these things, and it goes both ways. There are some individuals that feel that this is so safe as to be uh, appropriate for recreational use without any medical oversight whatsoever. There are some people that feel that almost with a religion-like sense that this is something that everyone should understand. On the other hand, these drugs are not to be used without medical oversight. They can hurt people, especially if they're not properly screened uh, before going into these studies. Give them about a two-hour psychiatric exam before we bring them into any of these studies just to make sure that they don't have some risk factors that we think are a concern. But on the other hand, there are those that feel that this is material that we should not be touching. There are some that feel that uh, drugs like psilocybin and LSD are addictive and lead to an inexorable decline. In fact, there's no data that suggests that in animal or human models that the psilocybin or LSD is addictive, which was something that, frankly, I didn't realize when I first got into this research space. There are other cultural groups, social groups, that have a concern about any drugs for the treatment of mental illnesses, and perhaps mental illnesses in general. And so this is one of those areas where we have to better get a better understanding with our collaborators across the campus and within the community to figure out what those barriers are, what kind of education we might best provide, and to provide the invitation for these groups to participate in the research if they so choose. Dr. Hudson, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. Jonah, you're most welcome. Thank you so much. Dr. Paul Hudson is a professor in UW-Madison's School of Pharmacy and a founding director of the UW Transdisciplinary Center for Research in Psychoactive Substances. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. We've got a lot more coming at you. As we do every Wednesday, we'll get the week in local government news on Downtown Abbey. We will head back to school on Madison in the 60s. And the weather models are all over the map. I'll try to put together some kind of a comprehensible forecast for you in about 10 or 15 minutes. But first, we'll take a break and check in on world headlines with a bulletin of world news from the BBC. Stay tuned.
The time is now 6.32 and 45 seconds, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. Do you know what the city council has been up to this week? Have you checked in with the Dane County Board? Well, if you haven't, each week we turn to the Capital Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about where your local government is up to. And here's the very latest from Becker on all that is local on this episode of Downtown Abbey. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by our local government wizard herself, Abigail Becker, local government reporter over there at the Cap Times. Abigail, how you doing this week? Hi, Jonah. I'm doing okay. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine. It is a great day to talk about local government news and look ahead and back to what's been happening here locally in Dane County. Uh, But first, we're going to take a look uh, statewide here. Pfizer received big news this week, and the state of Wisconsin is continuing its efforts to persuade people to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Give me the latest update on that front. Yeah, so Pfizer's vaccine against COVID-19 for people 16 years and older became the first in the United States on Monday to advance beyond emergency use status. Uh, The Food and Drug Administration gave the drug its full authorization. I will note the Pfizer vaccine for children between 12 and 15 years old is still authorized for emergency use only. Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock called the approval of the vaccine a milestone that would bring the United States one step closer to altering the course of the pandemic. The COVID-19 vaccine from Moderna, though, is still being reviewed for approval, and Johnson & Johnson is expected to apply soon for full authorization for its vaccine. So following that news on Monday, Governor Tony Evers announced that Wisconsin residents who received their first dose of any COVID-19 vaccine will be eligible to receive a $100 Visa gift card. This offer applies to Wisconsinites ages 12 and up who received their first dose from a Wisconsin provider between August 20th and September 6th. No proof of insurance, citizenship, or identification is required to receive the vaccine or the $100 incentive. This is now the second state-run incentive program to encourage vaccination. During the 11 days of the Wisconsin State Fair, 608 people received vaccine doses and vouchers for a free cream puff at an on-site clinic. So I'll let you decide what the better deal is, a cream puff or $100. Uh, So in addition to that $100 reward, Wisconsinites can call 211 to request help with finding transportation to get a vaccine. Now, public health officials really hope that the full authorization will prompt more people to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Some have said that, you know, they want to wait until the the vaccine gets its full authorization. Well, now is the time if you have been waiting for that. Um, but Public Health Madison Dane County Communications Coordinator Morgan Fink told me that the agency doesn't believe the news of the full authorization will have a huge impact on increasing vaccination rates in Dane County. But that's because Dane County vaccination rates are pretty high as they are right now. The FDA's decision, of course, comes as local communities across the nation grapple with this latest surge in the coronavirus pandemic, stemming from the more contagious Delta variant. All 72 of the state's counties are experiencing a high or very high level of disease activity, according to data from the State Department of Health Services. And in related news, on Monday, the state announced new rules for its employees regarding their vaccination status and documentation. Tell me a little bit more about that new policy. 
Yeah, so all Wisconsin state employees within the executive branch agencies are now required to provide their COVID-19 vaccination status and documentation by September 9th, in addition to wearing masks indoors. Um, But this new rule, which took effect on Monday, does not mandate that employees be vaccinated. So the new policy does not mean that uh, employees of the state who are not vaccinated should go ahead and get vaccinated. Previously, state employees were only required to wear masks in state buildings, regardless of their vaccination status. Also, um, I will note that not all Wisconsin public employees are affected by the rule. Um, Teachers and UW system employees are not affected by it. So according to this new policy, the state is implementing the requirement to show, you know, their proof of uh, vaccination and documentation because it's committed to making our buildings and work sites safe for our employees and citizens. Now, disciplinary action may be taken if state employees don't comply with their workplace policies. The vaccination information employees provide will be treated as confidential medical records and could be accessed by human resources staff or other agency staff with, you know, a business need to know. Um, And that's according to a frequently asked questions document on the state's website. According to the Department of Administration, the change was in progress prior to the FDA's full authorization on Monday. But, you know, it kind of uh, fits in nicely with that announcement. Now, just to remind folks, what public health rules do we have in place here locally? So at the beginning of the month, Dane County and the city of Madison instituted a requirement that employees provide proof of vaccination or a weekly negative COVID-19 test. Um, you know, when I reached out to Dane County Executive Joe Parisi's office, the director of communications told me that the county doesn't anticipate changing their rules at this time. The mayor's office also didn't have an update in, in their rules either um, regarding employees and vaccine requirements. But the mayor did note that she's encouraged that the Pfizer vaccine has reached full authorization and hopes that, you know, the progress will, you know, result in more Madisonians getting vaccinated. Also, Dane County has implemented an indoor mask mandate for everyone over the age of two years old. And the University of Wisconsin-Madison will start requiring a weekly negative COVID-19 test for employees and students who have not shared proof of vaccination with University Health Services beginning August 30th. So um, I'm on the lookout for changes in these rules. You know, as this pandemic evolves, so do workplace policies. So I will uh, keep you updated if I hear anything new. And looking away from public health policies is much ado about amplified noise in some neighborhoods, as an alder has proposed a measure to ban amplified music at city streeteries if it's within 100 feet of residential housing. What's going on there? Yeah, there is much ado about this, Jonah. So the proposal to ban live amplified music at outdoor patios in the city's streetery program, if they are within 100 feet of residential housing, um, you know, failed really to gain traction at the Madison Arts Commission meeting on Monday. Um, so this commission voted to send a memo to the city council expressing support for amplified music at streetery locations across the city, while also recognizing the complexities for establishments that are near um, near houses where people live. During this discussion on Monday, it you know it appeared that, that a primary issue centered on a miscommunication between the Harmony Bar on Atwood Avenue its neighbors, as well as the alder representing that area, Brian Benford, and that area is District 6. The city council is expected to take this issue up at its meeting next Tuesday. So some some background here on streeteries and music and what that is all about. 
In May 2020, Mayor Satya Rose Conway issued a citywide emergency order to temporarily allow restaurants to expand outdoor eating and drinking onto public sidewalks, um, you know, parking spaces, privately owned parking lots, and some streets off of the Capitol Square. Um, it's called the Strudery Program, and the initiative is meant to support struggling restaurants during the pandemic and to better protect customers and staff from the spread of COVID-19. Um, there's just more places to eat outside, <laughs> essentially. The city also waived sidewalk cafe and street vending fees through April 2022. Then earlier this year, the city allowed businesses participating in the streetery program to host amplified music and performances in their sidewalk cafes. And live outdoor performances with amplified sound can be held between 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. on Thursdays. And then on Fridays, music can start at the same time and extend to 9 p.m. One neighbor of the Harmony said that the music is so loud, though, that her child can't sleep and the house shakes. Um, another neighbor of the Harmony also spoke at this meeting, expressing concerns uh, with the volume. So Alder Benford, who sponsored the resolution, said he wants to see the rules change to be considerate of you know, of these neighbors who have lived in the neighborhood for, for quite some time. And in one case, I think one of those neighbors has lived there longer than the Harmony has been in business. So Alder Benford was really, you know, trying to do right by those neighbors whose quality of life is currently being affected. Now, the owner and general manager of the Harmony said she followed up with Alder Benford to set a meeting to work with those neighbors, but that it was never actually scheduled. So that's where it seems to me that this miscommunication um, is happening. During the meeting, also, Brian Benford was surprised to hear that his proposal could affect around 30 businesses. And he said that he you know, doesn't want to create a broad brush solution you know, to this issue. So it sounds like there are still some things to be worked out about this. Also at the meeting, local musicians and restaurant operators strongly opposed the proposal and argued that live music is necessary for both the musician and the restaurant to survive the difficult economic environment caused by the coronavirus pandemic. So um, like I said earlier, this issue um, should be before the city council next week. And I'll see what happens then. All right, I've been joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, as always, thanks for joining me this week. Great to be here, Jonah. And now, without a without an intro, I'll go straight into the weather. Well, as you may have been able to tell from the divergences between my Monday morning forecast and what actually transpired over the past couple of days, we're in a period of some difficulty for forecasting, and that's also been reflected in the volatility that you might have noticed in the National Weather Service's predictions, as well as the forecast discussions that come out of the local National Weather Service offices. The forecasters writing those have expressed frustration at the lack of unanimity, sometimes even the lack of similarity between the depictions on various of the short-range, high-resolution computer models. We're in one of those situations in which the amount of moisture and heat in the lower part of the atmosphere is making the atmosphere very prone to lifting and overturning in convection, while at the same time, the cool, low-level outflows that are produced by that convection can also easily re-trigger convection. So we end up with a situation in which small or mid-scale happenings like these thunderstorms or the clusters that they form can eventually build on one, one another enough to change the wider scale outcomes. And yesterday was a sort of case study in this. We expected it to be hot and sunny during the day, but the cool outflows and debris cloudiness from thunderstorm clusters upstate produced a surprisingly pleasant afternoon here, at least if you avoided the kind of random rain showers that popped up. 
The temperature dropped from 88 at noon to 75 after that gust front pushed south through here around 1 p.m. And then we hung in the low or mid-70s for the rest of the day. So that's stabilized the atmosphere, and we didn't get any severe thunderstorms at the end of the day like we thought we might. At the moment, the bulk of that steamy uh, subtropical air that was in here yesterday morning remains down to our south, mostly confined to central and southern Illinois, though its distribution even there remains pocketed and uneven, given additional overturning by thunderstorms there, along with differential heating between the cloudy areas and those that have cleared, all of which, again, complicates making accurate predictions going forward. In general, the coming three- or four-day period does look warmer and likely wetter than the past few days have been, with strengthening low pressure to our west again lifting the synoptic warm front, or what remains of it, back northward past us. The general model consensus has that warm front clearing us north by late Friday or early Saturday, but a couple of the models, even from this very latest round of runs this afternoon, are now showing strong convective complexes that will be developing tomorrow and again early Friday as that warm air advances, producing enough outward uh, outflow southward to retard or at least complicate that front's advance. So uh, whether we're hot and sticky on Saturday and Sunday still remains to be seen. I'm guessing we will. So anyway, a real forecasting mess, but with any luck I can get maybe the first 24 hours of this at least roughly correct. Tonight should remain mostly quiescent and muggy with uh, the high and mid cloud cover up there slowly breaking and clearing, though probably not entirely before morning. Temperatures will drop to the low 70s on light northerly winds, generally below 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow, the models that are currently verifying the best with the going convection out to the west in Nebraska and South Dakota are tending to show that activity building east and northeastward through here or close by us by the midday or afternoon hours, probably in a more dissipating state by then. So anyway, clouds are likely to increase as we go into and through tomorrow morning with the highest chances of thunderstorms probably in the mid to late afternoon on through the evening hours. Temperatures will be held to the probably the 80-degree range by the cloud cover tomorrow. Winds will be easterly at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Substantial rains are possible from these thunderstorms, especially if they begin to train for a while over the same areas. And storms should eventually pass east before daybreak on Friday. And Friday, a difficult call. We may see a period of drying and clearing, but more thunderstorms are likely by later in the day. I'm guessing the temperatures will remain uh, once again in the low 80s with all the cloud cover and perhaps precipitation, with easterly winds uh, veering southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We may dry out then as we go into Saturday, and that warm front lifts past us, leaving us partly cloudy, breezy, and hot with sticky dew points in the mid-70s and temperatures in the upper 80s on southwesterly winds at 8 to 15 miles per hour on Saturday. Or we may end up with a cloudier, wetter, and cooler scenario if that frontal position remains either near us or somewhere just north of us, perhaps. Anyway, Sunday looks to be hot also before better cooling then ensues with the passing cold front for early next week. At the moment, at the station here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 82 degrees. The dew point temperature is 70. Winds are out of the southwest at 5 miles per hour. Uh, passing, just a few passing cumulus up at about 4,000 feet. Uh, plates of all the cumulus up above that, about 18,000 feet. Uh, the barometer uh, the barometer is at 30.04 inches of mercury and steady over the past several hours.
Time is now 6.48, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Well, to mark the start of the school year, we go back to the day when Madison first started looking at issues of race in the classroom. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, Race and Classrooms. On May 4, 1960, members of the Mayor's Commission on Human Rights have an inconclusive meeting with School Superintendent Philip Falk about why he has not offered a full-time position to substitute teacher Sloan Williams or any other black teachers. Falk says that two offers had been made to another black teacher, which she declined, alleging past discrimination. A member of the campus Ku Klux Klan interfraternity when he was at the UW in the early 1920s, Falk insists that the board does not discriminate and would hire a black teacher if the most qualified applicant, but won't engage in affirmative action. The following September, William Willie Taylor becomes Madison's first black permanent teacher, teaching physical education at Silver Springs School on the South Side. In January 1962, Louisiana native Geraldine Bernard becomes the first black permanent classroom teacher in the Madison school system, substituting during the spring semester in several elementary schools before later permanent assignments at Silver Spring and Aldo Leopold. In fall, three black teachers are hired full-time at schools on the south and west sides. In early October 1964, the school board unanimously adopts a guide to help Madison teachers develop interracial understanding in their classrooms. A magnificent job, says Madison NAACP President Marshall Colston of the program, a result of the NAACP's request last year for a study on how African Americans are treated in textbooks. The Human Rights Curriculum Guide will be used in daily classroom activities for all grades. But Equal Opportunities Commission Chairman John McGrath says it was, quote, a very serious oversight for the guide to omit any mention of the commission or the new Equal Opportunities Ordinance. On March 7, 1966, School Superintendent Robert Gilbert grudgingly agrees to stop requesting photos of job applicants shortly after State Industrial Commissioner Carl Laurie and Attorney General Bronson LaFollette say doing so is discriminatory and would tend to discourage non-white applicants. Gilbert says administrators never discriminated against applicants and that photos were a valuable clue to help officials remember the thousand applicants they interview each year for the 300 or so openings. The loss of pictures will create a handicap for both applicants and us, Gilbert says, but the use of pictures is apparently not acceptable, so we shall comply with the ruling. On August 7, 1967, new superintendent Douglas Ritchie tells the board he wants, quote, a cosmopolitan staff embracing all nationalities and races, but that there is, quote, a shortage of Negroes in the professions and a lack of applicants. 
A federally mandated survey in the fall shows that only 13 of Madison's 1,623 instructional staff are black. On April 9, 1968, Superintendent Ritchie keeps schools open during the funeral of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., directing building principals to use their own judgment in deciding how to impart the significance of King's life. The school census that year shows non-whites comprise 2.3% of the 34,002 student body, 544 black pupils, 145 identified as Oriental, 105 identified as Spanish-American, 24 American Indian, and the remaining 33,184 identified as white. 16 of the 54 schools have no black pupils. On May 20, Superintendent Ritchie acknowledges to the Citizens Committee for the Teaching of Negro History in Madison Schools that he could, quote, identify no thread of continuity in how the schools present any non-white history and culture. The blind spots are so vast they're appalling, says school board member James McDonald. On May 22nd, Betty Fay, chair of the Equal Opportunity Commission's Education Committee, says, quote, our Negro citizens are growing very discouraged, and time is running out, as she urges the board to create a human rights curriculum supervisor and a director of human relations. Black children, quote, are not having anywhere near an equal education, she says, due to, quote, the climate and prejudicial attitudes of white pupils and teachers who, quote, don't have the background and understanding to relate to blacks. The much-ballyhooed 1964 Human Rights Curriculum Guide is, quote, merely gathering dust, EOC Director the Reverend James C. Wright adds. The job would be challenging. Faye notes, quote, there does not yet exist an American history book which includes the role and impact of the American Negro in our history. On June 16th, a new Human Relations Progress Report documents the difficulty the school board is having recruiting and retaining black teachers. Of the 1,850 teachers in the system, only 16 are black. Negroes have excellent employment opportunities, Superintendent Ritchie says, and we are unable to attract many applicants. A recent recruiting trip to historically black teacher colleges in the South was canceled when only three students signed up for interviews. Madison has just begun trying to recruit in eastern Pennsylvania, but Ritchie isn't too optimistic. The board conducts a three-day human relations workshop for all principals and administrators and offers professional credit to teachers who take a week-long course on the Negro in American history. It's taught by State Historical Society Director Leslie H. Fischel, Jr., an early member of the Friends of the Urban League. The board later teams up with the local NAACP chapter on a five-point program to improve racial understanding and opportunity. On August 12th, the school board unanimously approves Ritchie's recommendation to create the position of Director of Human Relations. As the NAACP, Urban League, EOC, League of Women Voters, and Citizens Committee for the Teaching of Negro History in Madison Schools have been advocating, it's seen as a way to foster interracial understanding. For the 1969-70 school year, officials announced the hiring of six new black teachers. Although the district takes four recruiting trips to historically black colleges in six southern states, all but one of the new hires are from the Midwest. 
A course in black history, a two-semester elective open to juniors and seniors, previously offered only at Central High School, becomes available to all high schools. And in late November, the East Senior High Student Senate votes against participating in the Elks Club Scholarship Contest until the clause limiting club membership to white males is removed from the club's national charter. We can't morally cooperate, student president Dix Bruce says of the decision to forfeit the chance to compete for $2,250 in scholarships. The West High Senate quickly follows suit. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. As you probably know, this local news is produced largely by volunteers. We need volunteers for reporters, for engineers, for writers, and a number of other positions. So if you're interested in working on the show, we could certainly use you. Call at 256-2001 during daylight hours and talk to the volunteer coordinator. It's a good deal. We provide all the training as well. Your reporter tonight was Jade Siri Ramos. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast. Ken Brady is the on-air engineer. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. Are you ready for Radio Roulette? WORT's news department has many volunteer positions to fill. So step right up to the Radio Roulette wheel and see what you could win with a spin. Whoa, 28 Black pays out a producer position for the Tuesday 8 o'clock buzz with Demita Brown. 18 Red will get you Wednesdays, 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. for a public affair and the syndicated show Leathers and Politics. 13 Black will get you Thursdays, 7.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. You will engineer and help broadcast radio literature. On-air opportunities may be present as well. And 14 Red wins you the engineer position for the Access Hour, Mondays from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. The news department is also looking for reporters, feature producers, and kiosk readers. Applicants must be fully vaccinated with a one-year commitment. We will provide all the free training you need. Engineers should have some familiarity with computers and willingness to work collaboratively. If you're interested in any of these prizes, contact Adrian Ranny at 608-321-9583 or email adrian, that's A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, at wrtfm.org. For more information on these engineer opportunities, visit the wortfm.org website and click on the How to Help tab. View current volunteer opportunities.